May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Well, good evening and welcome to Pello Talk on this evening, the 12th of August, Thursday night. Uh, I'm your host, Dave Pello. And um, tonight we're going to be talking to Alexandra Marshall about uh, some interesting developments in New South Wales. And of course, as advertised, we'll be talking to John Ruddick about uh, exactly where he's up to with the Liberal Party of Australia. He wrote, after about 30 years of campaigning for democratising the Liberal Party, writing a book called Make the Liberal Party Great Again, uh, he's actually blown all of that up uh, in frustration at the futility of trying to reform the Liberal Party. So that will be quite an interesting uh, interview and conversation, um, talking about liber liberty in general as well as the demise of the Liberal Party and uh, what little hope there is for reforming it right now, at least in John's mind. Well, earlier this week, uh, George Christensen MP, a member for Dawson in the federal parliament, uh, introduced a private member's bill uh, with two readings called the Children Born Alive Protection Act. And uh, in that bill, uh, it actually seeks to treat children born as a result of an abortion procedure equally to children who are premature in any other circumstance. Some of the myths out there about there about this include, uh, you know, something like being cruel to children who have no viability or compatibility with life, uh, but that's a lie because it, the bill only says they should be treated equally to any other child born prematurely at that stage. So if there's no compatibility for life, there's no extraordinary or extreme measures, uh, but it is extraordinary and extreme to completely leave a child to die without care and intervention when that child is compatible with life and has a high chance if just given a basic standard of health care. And that is our obligation under international treaties to which Australia is signatory, such as the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, this is basic human civility and uh, civilization, uh, and it's beyond some people. Well, this week I emailed every single member of the coalition, the Liberal Party, the National Party, the Lower House and the Upper House, and asked them if they would support this bill. It seems like a no-brainer. It seems like it's very straightforward. I have to say the response was underwhelming. There were a couple of positive responses, uh, a handful of good people, and I won't read all of them, but here's just a selection. Uh, Senator Erica Betts says, quote, it is unconscionable that in our country, children born alive from failed abortions are deprived of medical care and left to die. Whatever one's stance on abortion, a child outside the womb must be afforded care like any other human being. The fact that babies can be left to die on the operating table 
is a damning indictment on our society and demonstrative of the utter callousness shown towards the most vulnerable. I applaud Mr Christensen on spearheading this incredibly important bill and it has my full support. Uh, Senator Erica Betts, a great option for those of you voting beneath the line on the Senate ballot uh, in Tasmania at next year's federal election. And uh, Senator Susan MacDonald in Queensland uh, says, quote, I support George Christensen's bill. I am horrified that anyone could condone the fatal neglect of children in any circumstances. And I note with some anger that we wouldn't be in this position if the Queensland Labor government hadn't passed laws regarding late term abortions. It's a source of great confusion to me that in these COVID times we have people, including the Queensland government, demanding lockdowns to protect human life, but at the same time showing complete disregard for babies born alive during termination procedures, end quote, uh, from Senator Susan MacDonald in northern Queensland. Um, and there were various other members and supporters. Uh, but I tell you what, those who indicated they would not support it from the coalition, from the right of centre allegedly liberal, allegedly conservative party, a plethora. I've got to encourage you tonight, before we get into the show, can you please take the time, wherever you are in Australia, to write to your Member of Parliament and Senator, both Liberal and Labor, and ask them to support the uh, George Christensen's private member bill, the Children Born Alive Protection Bill of 2021. Uh, this won't go anywhere. The bill has been introduced, but unless we can get um, half of the parliament, lower house, plus one, to vote in support of this bill, it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, and it's ridiculous. Like, what is the downside of protecting these children? Uh, the claims that this doesn't happen uh, are irrelevant. If it doesn't happen, what's the harm of this protection making sure it can't happen? But we actually know from health ministers it does happen. It's been tabled in Hansard records of parliaments around Australia, especially Western Australia and Queensland, uh, that this does happen. Victoria keeps pretty good uh, notes on this, and it does happen. Children who are completely viable with life are left alone, crying and dying slowly without any care at all, and that does not, that's not the way a civilised society behaves. So please contact your federal members, lower house and upper house, uh, call their office and uh, implore them as a basic act of decency to support this bill. One uh, member uh, wrote to me and said that he believes it's unconstitutional uh, and only the business of the states. That's a common cop-out and totally untrue. The federal government, because of high court precedents and rulings, has the power to legislate on any matter that Australia is a signatory to and has treaties with other nations to make sure that there is universal conformity and cooperation with those standards across the nation. That is the legal uh, advice and reality. And anybody who says otherwise is just looking for an excuse to not support this bill. And that's something that should be remembered when we vote for them. But congratulations to George Christensen on um, supporting that bill. Well, I'd like to introduce our guests for this evening now, uh, John Ruddock and Alexandra Marshall. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. John, good to have you with us. Good evening, Dave. Thanks very much for having me. And Alexandra, always great to have you in good internet connection. <laughs> I'm just here to cause trouble. Yeah, you are. Uh, John, let's have a look at uh, your um, article that you uh, published in The Spectator today. Uh, great article. 
Um, great conclusion. Uh, freedom on the march. Why I will continue protesting against lockdowns. Uh, Peter Fitzsimmons thinks you're an incredibly selfish, narcissistic, irresponsible and reckless individual, along with everybody else who thinks uh, freedom might actually uh, be important in this nation. Uh, can you uh, explain for us, uh, prosecute, what are the arguments you make in this article? Okay, so uh, I am a history student. I've been interested in history my whole life. So you obviously don't listen to John Ruddick when it comes to medical science okay so i'm not going to talk about the rights and wrongs of COVID, except for one narrow little part of COVID, which anybody with half a brain can work out is a COVID restriction which is unnecessary and nutty and that is being outside is good for you in terms of sunshine and exercise and it is so far not one person on planet earth despite the millions who've caught COVID. Uh, not one person has, has had it documented that they caught it outside. People are catching, obviously catching COVID in the family home, in the workplace, probably in trains and in other confined spaces, maybe supermarkets. But in the outdoors, we know that it's not, no one's catching it. Okay, now, now it's not just me saying that. Uh, Channel 9, uh, the 6 o'clock Channel 9 news, about five weeks ago, Chris O'Keefe, their, their Sydney political reporter, he said that he had it confirmed. He did a little report on it. And he said, New South Wales Department of Health confirms not one person in New South Wales has caught COVID outside. And Chris O'Keefe said, well, therefore, there's, there's no science to stop people being at the beach and being in the park, et cetera, et cetera. The next night, Chris O'Keefe said uh, that he gave, he gave a longer story making the same point, And he said, no one in all of Australia has caught COVID outside. Well, I thought that's pretty interesting, but I did a little look around. The New York Times, that right-wing rag, that, that extreme, you know, uh, COVID-denying anti-vax organisation called the New York Times had a lengthy story saying no one in the world, in the whole world, has caught COVID outside. So I'm thinking, okay, what is the harm in going to the freedom rally i thought i thought it's zero harm because it's obviously going to be outside so i went along i actually thought that there'd only be about 200 people there and i thought i would sort of stand back at a distance um and i thought you know uh, I, I didn't think it'd be a big deal but i thought i'd go and have a little look i turned up at the freedom rally i'd only heard about it the night before and there's hundreds of people there. Soon there's thousands of people there and they are good people, Dave they, and Alexandra. They are good, good, solid, apolitical people who were very upset about in a whole multitude of ways were having their livelihoods wrecked by all the COVID restrictions. So when I, and, and the police were, um, were sort of chaperoning us and telling us which way to go and blocking off streets. There's a lot of police there. The police were very cooperative. The police were very friendly. When we got to the town hall after about a two and a half hour march, which was an enormous amount of fun and a zero violence, we get to the town hall, the police get, get up there, they hand over a microphone to people, all very, very friendly. Now there was 20, after almost everybody had left, there was 20 seconds of some fools who I don't rule out that they were Antifa, trying being agent provocateurs, but who knows? Some fools throw, threw some things at the police. There was 20, a 20 second melee, which barely anybody had seen who was at the at the Freedom Rally. It was such a big deal. And then that gets characterized as what the event was all about. But 
even more important than that, what would all the experts in Australia, from Kevin Rudd and Zali Stegall and Peter Fitzsimons, all these you know, highly intelligent people, uh, are absolutely certain it's going to be a super spreader event. It's going to be a COVID super spreader event. And I'm sitting there scratching my head thinking, when I'm seeing all these highly intelligent people say these things, I'm thinking, surely you know that it doesn't get caught outside. I mean, it doesn't mm. seem to be. Not one Black Lives Matter rally or not one Freedom March all around the world has caught it. Something, And these people just piled on because we're hurting their golden calf, their beloved, their beloved COVID. Yep. Is it too soon to uh, to know for certain that there were zero cases and transmissions at the Freedom Rally? Is the incubation period for that likelihood fully passed? Well, I wanted to give it two weeks, and I did give it two weeks. Now, people who know more about it than me say, because this Delta is more infectious, that we would actually would have known. If people at the Freedom Rally had caught COVID at the Freedom Rally, we would mm. have known within three days. But it's now almost three weeks. It's almost three weeks now. Right, three every weeks. Every day, the 11 o'clock press briefing, every day we've had, up until the last few days, we've had a million questions, the Premier their chief health bureaucrats, their health minister, all badgered. How many of the new cases today are connected to the Freedom March? And the politicians have to say, oh, well, well, none today, but there might be, uh, there might be in the future, and it's still dangerous, then the next day. Anyone caught it at the Freedom Rally? And the, the media just was just asking every single way, has anyone caught it? No, no, yep. no, 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 no. And, and Gladys had, and Kerry Chant had to admit at some point, they said, oh, well, you know, it is hard to get outside. Oh, well. It's half truth. It's impossible to get outside so far. Yeah. Alexandra, what do you reckon? Uh, should we have uh, freedom marches without restrictions like we had Black Lives Matter marches? Well, on a technicality, by the standards of which the uh, state health judge freedom marches, Bunnings and Woolworths and Coles are far more dangerous than any freedom rally. And I don't yeah. see them shutting those anytime, down anytime soon. But the question isn't so much is a freedom rally dangerous? It's does the government have the right to prevent something which is an inherent right of citizens, which is to protest? I've long suspected that freedom protests are not so much dangerous to the individuals involved. They are dangerous to government policy, which doesn't like being challenged, doesn't like hearing that there are sections of the community that disagree with it. And so it seems, if you look at how they treat Black Lives Matter protests and climate uh, exchange, uh, what they call extinction rebellion, the climate change marches, they're allowed to go ahead. But every time someone tries to march for freedom or liberty, suddenly the government's there with all the police, they crack right down on it, which makes me think that this is more about politics and is about COVID. But also another technicality is the, the legislation that allows them to pretend to ban protests is not applicable to viruses which are endemic. And you'd be hard pressed to say that uh, COVID isn't endemic now that it has spread across the world. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. It's become like influenza. And they are not allowed to lock down a nation over influenza for obvious reasons. It, it doesn't help. And I suspect the same thing would be true of COVID if it were now tested in the court of law at this moment in time now that it's become endemic to the world. Uh, John, you finish your article with a, uh, a, a statement of intent to actually organise a freedom picnic. Uh, now, I'm not sure if that's making a meal of freedom the way the Liberal Party has or if there's uh, something a little more productive and, and helpful in mind. What's the freedom Will picnic all about? Cake? Will there be cake? 
<laughs> oh, yes. well, well, you know, in, in, in the French Revolution, I think, I think in the 1847, it was sort of, sort of they had three revolutions in that period, but they had the, the, the French king um, banned people having political protests, but you were still allowed to have public banquets. So the people fighting <laughs> for freedom at that time said, well, let's have a series of banquets across France. And they were hugely successful and helped topple that bad king. So that was sort of half the inspiration for the freedom picnic. Now that we have established, and no one, no one will say otherwise, that nobody at the Freedom Rally caught, caught COVID, and that it was, uh, you know, no one in the world could have. Uh, therefore, what what is to stop good citizens protesting their government, their state? The, the, uh, we're proposing it in the domain, which is immediately behind Parliament House. It's a huge place in the. 19th century, they used to have huge rallies down there, political rallies. So we would be uh, you know, following in their footsteps and we would be having a, 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 a picnic where we would be having some speeches and we would be having a good time because the people that turned up at the Freedom Rally I went to were just fantastic people and everybody enjoyed meeting all these other good people that feel the same way. Now, the other thing that needs to be said about the Freedom Rally is let's say Ebola was on the loose or let's say that there was a variety of the flu out there that really was making people drop dead, okay? Well, I don't think even in that situation, we need the government to say that we're going to have a lockdown. Do you know why? Because everyone's going to have run to the hills by that stage anyway. Exactly right. I was going to make that point as well. If there was a real problem, you don't need to legislate it. People would lock themselves in their homes on their own and put on hazmat suits. That's that's what would happen. And that's the point that's never made. And so, so now what we should do with this flu, we know after a year and a half, that uh, you know that it, it it certainly is more deadly for elderly people and people who are uh, obese or have other comorbidities. Primarily, primarily obesity. When you see mm-hmm. somebody under under the age of seventy who has died of COVID, I'm sorry, almost always they are very heavy people. And the government should have been running a public messaging campaign saying, "Hey, everybody, COVID's on the loose. Uh, the best advice we can give you is." Get fit and healthy as much as you possibly can. Uh, but, John, I've been locked out of my gym, so I'm becoming rounder because I'm not allowed to go to my gym, which is yeah, quite the depressing. That, that I wasn't going to say anything, Ellie Melly, but... Yeah, you're lucky I appeared on here tonight, you know. <laughs> had to wear black. <laughs> yes, so so the, so the we don't let... The, you know, there's a movie made about 10 years ago, a big Hollywood movie with a few stars in it called Contagion. Has anybody said contagion? Oh, yes. Yeah, great. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, I mean, I watched that about three months after the whole COVID psychomania came along. Wow. And I thought to myself, whoever made this movie, you know, they are plugged in with, they've, they've sort of helped shape everything through COVID, okay? Because what were we told that started COVID in the first place? A bat in China. And what's the whole movie about? It's about a bat in China starts this, global pandemic and and, wow. and, it's a, and and it's a similar thing you know like the, in that movie the government are the good guys and anybody yep. that questions the government are the baddies but one thing yep. that's not similar between today and the movie is that people in the movie are fighting and clamoring over each other to get to the vaccine okay in this in this uh so-called real world pandemic you know we've got to be bribed to take the vaccine in many cases 
Yes. You know, What's I think the, uh, the very first commandment should have been don't eat bats. I mean, that would have been a great place to start for the welfare of humanity. Just leave the winged rats alone. It's not a good idea. That's right. Well, uh, those dietary laws are certainly in the Bible, Alexandra, although not necessarily part of conventional Christianity. By the way, I have a bone to pick with John. By just appearing on this panel with you, advertising your little picnic, we're all going to get door knocked in New South Wales. So thanks for that. Well, okay. Well, look, I mean, I don't want to cause any more trouble with the coppers, I can tell you that. So we're very, very clear. We're, we're, we are... Have, we are writing to the New South Wales Police in the next few days. We are officially lodging an application to have a public meeting, and that will be on behalf of the Liberal Democrats. And we will put that into the New South Wales Police, and we'll see what they say. Let's hope there's no political interference. Obviously, it's not going to cause COVID. Obviously, it'll be healthy for people to get out and socialise and be in the sunshine. Now, if the police say we can't have a freedom picnic, well, then we won't have a freedom picnic, but we will go to the courts. We'll do exactly what Black Lives Matter did, uh, who were declined a public protest, a permit uh, by the police, okay, because it was COVID. And then uh, they went to the courts and I think the Supreme Court said they agreed with the police. And I think the Court of Appeals said, no, 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 you can have your protest. Okay, well, that was when it was COVID, not Delta. That's when a lot more people were dying of this thing. Okay, so um, so let's see what they say. I, I'll be happy to keep your audience up to date. Yeah, please do. Yeah, we will uh, keep abreast of that with bated bated breath. But what uh, one important thing, Alexandra, is look, there will not be a protest unless it's legal. Can we just make we're not planning an insurrection here? We want to have a legal picnic, a freedom picnic. It's not insurrection cake and some cocktails then. That's right. Yes, there won't be any of that. You, uh, you uh, make um, make some. Nevertheless, do make some interesting um, comparisons uh, with Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King and uh, Lech Walesa. I'm sorry, I don't know that name, um, that history at all. Did I pronounce that right? Lech Walesa. He was the in the late 1980s. He was the trade union leader in Poland, who sort of who was the leader of street protests against a very evil communist government. And he ended up, I think, getting the Nobel Prize. And I think he ended up the president of Poland when they had a democratic election. He was wow. a great guy. Yeah. Brilliant. And he got arrested, just like Mahatma Gandhi, just like Nelson Mandela, just like Martin Luther King, just like Lech Walesa. They, the, 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 the establishment hated their guts. Okay. And... At, you know, at all of those pro those, th those three or four people I mentioned, I'm sorry to say, they often the, the media reports at the time would often say, oh, there was, a, uh, there was a, a demonstration today and there was some violence. I think a lot of the time they, they stir up the violence. They, yeah. the, people, and the media just want to characterise the whole thing as just a little bit of violence. Well, look, yep. when people are upset about an oppressive government and then the, then the police are there en masse, okay, well, look, you know, sadly... Uh, it should we shouldn't have even been having the protest, okay, because we shouldn't be having the uh, the lockdown. Uh, but yeah, looks these things will occasionally happen. Well, the media are inconsistent on that. Look at the Black Lives Matter mostly peaceful protests with the entire city on fire behind it, and they didn't seem to mind the yellow <laughs> vest protests either. So it, it seems to me they pick and choose when they care about the nature of a protest. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Uh, well, if you are watching this on YouTube or Facebook on uh, the Good Source or Dave Pello channels, uh, thank you very much. Can you please invite uh, your friends to join us? We've got a lot more coming up on the show tonight and it would be a shame for them to miss out. Feel free to submit your comments wherever you're watching, Facebook or YouTube. Um, ask John or Ellie or myself any question. Uh, if your comment is uh, slightly coherent and on topic, we may even include it in the show, put it on screen and, and have a chat about it. Uh, so that would be really, really good. Uh, looking forward to uh, including your comments. Um, in, share the posts now, though, and invite your friends. Uh, and for those of you listening to the podcast uh, later on Delayed Stream, uh, you can watch the video back on goodsource.news uh, forward slash pello dash talk dash 5858. Uh, well, let's have a chat now about comparisons uh, such as you've made, John. Uh, we um, basically saying this is comparable to a communist dictatorship uh, and other totalitarian uh, dictatorships. And we have quite a lot of people, uh, no few of them in, shall we say, conservative media, who are getting quite uppity and they're getting the knickers in a knot when we make comparisons to the social conditions uh, which nurtured some of the authoritarian and totalitarian regimes in the 1930s, uh, leading later on to, to World War II. Obviously, we're talking about Germany. Um, there was that, that fake emergency, uh, maybe that false flag operation. Um, but, you know, the government declared um, extended and prolonged emergency powers after the uh, fire in the German parliament, the Reichstag. Um, is making comparisons uh, with some of those extreme moments of dictatorship and tyranny in history premature, uh, lazy and childish, or, or is it actually a necessary step in being vigilant against those reoccurrences in, in our future? Well, look, we have to be very vigilant about protecting our freedoms. I think it is overstating it to say that we're sort of anything really like a communist regime. Okay, I mean, I, in, I had an article in this, but look, it's the thin edge of the wedge and it's the precinct right. that is concerned. It's opening up the door to it. And what's most alarming is you've got about one third of, of the country. Look, I think, I think a majority of Australians so far support the COVID restrictions. I think they're wrong. I think that the minority is growing. But putting aside the majority, I think one in three Australians think it's fantastic, can't get enough of COVID restrictions. So that is the real concern, that you've got a lot of people out there who really want more and who are not open to the idea that, uh, you know, that we may well be damaging the country and overstating this situation. Yep. Uh, now, I had an article in The Spectator a month or so ago in which I said, look, if you want to compare COVID to George Orwell's 1984, which social media often does, I said, look, it's just not fair. Uh, it's nothing like 1984. We don't have monitoring cameras in our home. Uh, and look, you, you don't get locked up for dissent. Okay, not yet, at least. Now, <laughs> um, but what I did say is I said, look, if 1984 is a 10, and before COVID, we were a two, in the free west which i think probably fair enough we weren't completely free there was a bit of big brother around but you know not that bad so if we were two before COVID, i think we're now a four okay so we've got a long way to go to 10 okay mm. 
the trend isn't good. And every day things sort of seem a little bit more alarming. Also every day, I think I think that rationality is also, I think more and more people are waking up. You know, no, nobody goes from being somebody who thinks that COVID is being overstated to then changing their mind. Okay, they, if, if you're already locked in saying it's overstated, you're only, you're only gonna, those people are only gonna, gonna keep growing. This is why I think it's, a, it's very much a growing minority that are against it. So um, look, the, the alarming thing is, is that, uh, you know, a lot of Australians who a lot of, you know, conservative, classical, classically liberal minded people just assumed that the vast majority of Australians really prized and were really grateful for what's happened in the West over the last two, three hundred years uh, for, you know, in establishing our constitutions and our freedoms. And we just took that for granted. Well, COVID has revealed that there's a hell of a lot of people that have just got no concept of it. And that, that is clearly because we've had left-wing politicians rewriting our curriculum. Ellie, is it accurate to say we don't have cameras in our home and we're not locked up for uh, disagreeing with the public policy? I'm not sure if that was the exact phrasing you used, John, because uh, mm. right now I'm, I'm thinking of the social media monitoring um, and... You, in England, maybe not Australia, but in England's not this very distant democracy bearing little resemblance to ours, uh, you're actually getting people with police knocking on the doors because of things they've posted uh, which may be unkind uh, about somebody's preferred gender identity. Um, and we've got a pregnant mother in Victoria uh, being arrested um, and dragged away because she was thinking about uh, having a a protest um, is the comparison to 1984. Isn't it just tragic that that we're even halfway to that kind of dystopian nightmare? Well, the fastest way to tell if you've got a problem is to try saying no to what appears to be a mandate or a, a gentle measure and see what happens to you. And if you find that you can't say no without ending up in jail, without a job, or without your right to see your family or to, you know, even exist as a normal person, well, then you know the measures have gone too far. And that's the thing. Some people who think these COVID measures are great keep saying yes. And so they're, they're on the side of the government. They're obeying all the government directions, and so they think it's all fine. But if you don't want to, I don't know, partake in basically a medical trial, then all of a sudden you find that you can't work, you can't travel within your own country, can't even leave your house if you're in New South Wales unless, you know, you're going for your one-hour mandated exercise on your own. I mean, as a single person, I haven't been allowed to see anybody for basically seven weeks. How is that not solitary confinement? And even the singles bubble mm. that they've got going requires people like me to pick one friend and they have to pick you back. And now the police have just passed extended powers so they can come and knock on your door to make sure you're only seeing your one designated friend. I mean, tell me how that's not 1984 style going on. The police have set up special task force to track you via social media and come and fine you or arrest you if you even think about attending a protest. I mean, these aren't normal behaviours. And we even had Liberal Michael O'Brien down in Victoria a couple of weeks ago calling for extended jail times and daily fines for anybody who doesn't fully cooperate with these COVID traces, basically saying if you refuse to let the government track you, then we're going to throw you in jail. I mean, this is, it's no stretch of the imagination to see that we are heading down a path that leads to nowhere good, for sure. 
And my main problem is that our civilization currently in the West has the same risk factors as what happened to Europe last century. That is, we are heading toward socialist style themes and regimes, particularly with the way this globalization thing's going. And now we've got this obsession with race politics. And what was Hitler's Germany was nothing more than a racially driven socialist state. I mean, we've seen this before, and it doesn't take long to go from a normal, supposedly free society to a complete basket case. It takes months and years, not decades, to end up in strife. And so you can't let a government set a precedent that says, we won't let you have your rights back unless you take this medical uh, demand that we have, because what sort of precedent does that set? Does that mean that our right to work and our right to travel is based on a government mandate? That's not correct. There are rights for a reason. Any thoughts on that, John? Uh, well, look, I can't disagree with it, but look, I, I do have to restate. Look, I, if I agree with everything you said, Ellie, that still means that we are a four out of ten. If, mm. not, if Orwell's book is ten out of ten, okay, because the fact that look, the fact that we are doing what we are doing right this second in George Orwell's book. Well, we would all be definitely put in prison and tortured and probably killed. Yeah. Okay. So we're still allowed to do this now. I agree. It's the trend's not good. Feels like it's getting worse. I, I had a tweet out yesterday, which you know, I, I just quoted a federal member of parliament, and that got censored. That got censored by Twitter. So yeah, it's misleading it's information. Been Eighteen months, John. It only took eighteen months to go from fully free Australia to yes. I'm locked in my house for seven weeks and I probably won't be allowed to work in the future unless I get a COVID jab. I can't see my parents, I let alone travel internationally. And we can't mm. operate our businesses. We've lost all of our life's work. That's not a, a, sh a long timeline, is it, for loss of rights and the loss of what it means to be an Australian? Well, it's really alarming. That's what it is. No question about it. And, you know, uh, it's, it, the fact it's happened so quickly and people just don't seem to care very few people, okay. Now, hopefully, hopefully, this is going to be a big wake up. I think, I think, is something that is politically encouraging about this is um, it often people who are what we might call new Australians, people who have uh, don't have a uh, you know English Irish background and who've come out to Australia since World War Two, normally come out from totalitarian hell holes, and those people have generally speaking voted Labor. Okay, well, I think what we're seeing now is I think a lot of these people are from who have fled authoritarian governments and know how bad government can be, I think they are really, uh, their votes are up for grabs now. I think that there could yep. be a, a big turning point there. I mean, I think you would think most people uh, who have a Middle Eastern background are solid Labor voters, not Green voters. Hmm. I don't know if they should be anymore. Now they shouldn't be the stupid Liberal Party voters. They should be. They should be supportive of Australia's best political party, the Liberal Democrats, the Liberal <laughs> the, the Libertarian Party. I know Ellie Belly may not agree with that, but uh, the this is the party that the times call for, a party yeah. which is completely dedicated to one thing: a smaller government maximising individual freedom. RJ Taylor agrees with you and says, I wonder what those first generation new Australians who fled those totalitarian regimes only to find them once again on their neighbourhoods a couple of generations later. I think he meant, I wonder what they think. Um, so, uh, yeah. Ellie, you wanted to respond? Yeah, I just want to ask John one more question and I promise I'll be quiet. 
Uh, what I've seen in the last few months is we used to have some dissent in the media. So we had at least a few commentators on several different channels who were prepared to at least prosecute the other side of the story. But since we've seen places like Sky taken down from YouTube and threatened their loss of revenue that way, they've basically circled the wagons and there's no longer any meaningful debate or discussion because everyone's so frightened that social media is going to cut off their income or that the government, who's been enforcing by their new COVID shield legislation, that you're not allowed to even present the alternate argument as a government. Uh, yeah. I worry that they're not, there's not going to be any conversation media and then we don't have a mainstream political party with any power that offers, offers an alternate case either. So what does the public do when they're not allowed to protest without being arrested? There's no free press media who are prepared to talk about it and the, there's no alternative government that will even argue the case. The citizens have been left with nothing but a steamroller just running off the edge of the cliff. Well, I think the press has been absolutely dreadful. All these press conferences, they ask the worst questions. It's like mm -hmm. the little kids, these reporters, trying to sort of just G the whole crisis up. They don't want to... I saw the Channel 9 News tonight. I got this second story, this big headline. 330 people in hospital in New South Wales with COVID. Well, you know, in 2017, we had 8,000 people during the flu season in hospital with the flu. So, you know, where's the perspective? But look, uh, there are, there are, look, and, and some, some newspapers that we have traditionally been you know, liked a lot have been disappointing. But look, let's take the Australian, for example. They've still got terrific writers in there. Now, uh, Adam Crichton has been sort of leading the way. And mm. the Sydney Morning Herald today had a terrific article from the uh, professor who led the uh, campaign for the AstraZeneca thing at Oxford University. He's come out today, he's given a hell of a lot of concessions. He says, yeah, well, the vaccine ain't working too well. Um, and he mm -hmm. says, you know, we've got to get used to this and we've got to, uh, you know, you know, if you're vaccinated, you're gonna, you, you've got just as much chance of carrying it, passing it on to other people. And he said, we've got to learn to live with it. Look, I thought it was a terrific article. So look, Chris Yorman occasionally in the Sydney Morning Herald has a very good article on, on the economic damage that these things are doing and other things. So, look, yes, the press is bad. It's not entirely bad. I do accept that in the, in the mainstream, let's say, conservative media, outside the spectator, there really is a complete, uh, you are absolutely 100% not allowed to question the vaccine efficacy. Uh, uh, John, that's uh, outside the spectator and the good source. Yeah. Oh, sorry, of course, of course, of course, of course. Yes, yes. So uh, now, look, as as you look, I mean, I ha I am sitting back and watching this vaccine debate because you know I don't know anything about science and I can't be bothered. I've got I'm I'm thinking about too many other things. So I was sitting back and watching this. I am concerned that. A lot of people who seem to have, you know, very, very, you know, solid credentials are getting silenced. And I'm thinking, you know, the only people in scientific debates that have been shut down in history have actually been turned out to be the right ones. If somebody is something saying something really stupid about science, like the Earth's flat or whatever, hmm. well, they won't get persecuted. They'll just get ignored and maybe you know, provide a little bit of amusement if they're saying something really exactly stupid. Exactly right. And something that yep. the establishment doesn't like about science, well, that's when they will get persecuted. And, of course, there's a hell of a lot of examples of that. So that's why I, you know, I'm... Uh, I, I, say, I, said it. I said it because the press, all throughout history, is the natural counterbalance to politicians. 
And if you don't have the press countering and questioning politicians, then what you end up with is what we had with the socialist regimes of last century, which is a runaway political nightmare because the politicians are never being challenged on their position and the public have no conduit to do so either. That would yeah. be the reason I raised the problem there, that we've watched the press, you know, fall into line with government policy, whether it be Liberal or Labor. That was why I raised it. Yeah. Well, let me um, actually... I guess um, so we spoke about the good source being happy to um, to cast some uh, critical thoughts in the direction of uh, vaccine um, efficacy. Uh, it was noted on the good source today in podcast and article uh, that um, constant references to the success of of historical uh, vaccines like uh, German measles and smallpox and polio. Uh, seem to have a very one-dimensional view of the history of how those vaccines were developed and implemented. Specifically, the polio vaccine was implemented in 1955 and within a month had to be pulled off the market after the Surgeon General, the Chief Health Officer of the nation, had insisted there was nothing wrong, nothing wrong with it at all, uh, because the vaccine was actually faulty uh, and it took them five years after stopping the mass vaccination program, it took them five years to come up with a safe vaccination in wow. 1960. And uh, 19 years later was the last polio case. Uh, so if eventually it was successful, uh, but not before it had caused the vaccine, had caused 40,000 cases of polio, 200 cases of paralysis and 10 deaths uh, and that was trust the experts trust the science uh, the most trusted most celebrated uh, medical expert in the nation had backed that and that's only to say um, that it is silly to take away the freedom of individuals to question the government and mm. to seek equally qualified experts uh, elsewhere uh, not that they're broadly, universally, unblinkingly anti-vaccination, but that a little bit of hesitation sometimes may actually save lives just as much as any other health measure by looking at things uh, soberly. Um, well, they, there was a case only in the early 2000s of another brand new vaccine uh, for a virus that killed some children. And I, and I have to say, the regulations for, for vaccines before COVID were extremely strict. If you started killing people, anybody, you got your product taken off market. It wasn't, oh, acceptable risk. It was, no, no, you have to go back and, and look at the safety of this product. And that's what happened yep. there. It was taken off the market. And then 10 years later, it came back with a successful vaccine that didn't kill small children. And that's yep. what we have to be really careful. Our standards have slipped so far from what they were, which is why I maintain my view of I never partake in drug trials, not unless you're paying me a fortune. Yep. Well, Ellie, let's uh, throw to the article now that uh, you've written. And we've got a, um, a great comment here which helps um, pivot across there from Andrew C. He says, Friendly Geordies put up a video saying that Australia is becoming a police state based on the home affairs policies. I know he isn't conservative friendly. Um, no, he's Geordie friendly. But nonetheless... What are your thoughts? Uh, so tell us about this fantastic article from you. Uh, this was very much uh, a rage article written because I'm sick of being lectured to. 
Oh, that article. I thought you were going to put up the good from that article. Spoiled <laughs> my intro Police. to my good source article, which was all fun. Okay, this article is not so much a rage article. It is a report on this current state of crisis that New South Wales is in, where we had uh, – the health minister, Hazard, go head-to-head -head with our police commissioner, which the health minister came off second best, uh, about who's going to be controlling the the rollout and the lockdowns, et cetera, in New South Wales. And essentially what happened was there were some health officials who were not passing on the details of COVID rule breakers to the police because they felt sorry for them because, you know, they're just ordinary citizens. And that infuriated the police who, you know, I'm sure they didn't want to miss out on their fines. And so now we've got the police extending their powers in New South Wales. They can close the holes and crack down even harder. And Gladys Berejiklian has already said, yep, I agree with you. And the legislation is being drawn up right now. And these extra restrictions include more arming on the street, including on door knocking patrols. The police are now able to come to your house to check to make sure that, you know, your singles bubble is the person you have nominated to be in your house. And you're not allowed to travel between your second property if you are from a lockdown uh, area, which I think marks the first time that we've not been allowed to visit our own private properties in this state in history. And so it was interesting to see this as a conflict brewing between the medical uh, part of our government and the police force who want to be in control. And it actually reminds me of when we had the bushfires where we had the rural fire chiefs trying to uh, fight with the government for control. It's sort of the same nightmare scenario that we have everyone wanting absolute control of the state. Any thoughts from you, John? The battle in New South Wales between health minister and uh, police? Have I think I the oh, sorry, is that for me? No, no, I yeah. didn't hear the question. You keep going. <sighs> Look, I think I... I um, the focus has been on southwest Sydney, okay, which is sort of the ethnic capital of Australia. You've got every every type of new Australian is out there. Now, most of these groups very, very much have a culture of visiting each other's homes hmm. constantly. It might be one of their cousins' birthday, and then there'll be 70 people there for it. This is just what they do. This is what they've done in their culture for millennia. And, and it's very, now, the, the Western Europeans have more of an individualistic uh, culture and, and probably can be more, can put up with being stuck alone more than others. But most people in the world, very, very much, you know, they, this is just their life. They want to socialise. So if, if, if grandma's sick, they want to go around and be with grandma and help grandma. And, and grandma wants them around there as well. So this is so this is why we've got this. Um, this is why it's breaking out there, okay? Because of those cultural restrictions, and I respect those those, those cultural traditions, and I, I think the police are not factoring this in. What I think the, the big unspoken thing about COVID twenty twenty one compared to COVID twenty twenty is that the fatality rate. Maybe people are getting more of it, okay, but uh, but the fatality rate is very much on par this year in Australia with the regular flu. It might be two or three times worse, but but I'm, I, that data is still very sort of inconsistent. Last year, 3.7% uh, of people in Australia who were diagnosed with COVID died. That's pretty high, okay? It's 
not it's not like it's you know the black death or something i think one third of western europe died from the black death but about three point if you this is on the department of health statistics yep and all the people that got it that 3.7 died and i think with the regular flu i think it's typically 0.1 percent of people who get the regular flu die okay so last year was bad we still overreacted in a big way. We should have done what Sweden did. But anyway, putting that aside, the last time I saw the statistics, and you know, the, not at the debate, you can go and see it on the Department of Health, uh, the amount of people in Australia that have got caught COVID and died is 0.25. Okay, so this, this it, so far, it appears to, and, and they can't say that that drop off, well, well may, maybe, maybe the vaccine is a big part of that. Maybe. Well, if you, okay. if you look, John, statistics, I just finished looking at them literally yesterday. The people who died and who were infected at the beginning of the pandemic were the aged care facilities. So the majority of cases in Australia were amongst the very old and sick. And that's why it had a high death rate, which it has a high death rate for pretty much any disease that works its way for that um, group of people. This time around, the majority of cases of transmission have been amongst the very young. Uh, oh. And people like between, I think it's under 50 have been the primary uh, uh, cases in this group. And we know that they have a much lower death rate. And so that would suggest that it's not necessarily a change in the death rate of the virus, but a different uh, subset of infection cases. So it'd be very difficult. You'd have to uh, change the data and look at it holistically rather than saying it killed as many people, therefore it's more dangerous. Right. Okay. Well, that all makes sense. Yes. Um, and. And I think also, even though the vaccination rate in Australia is still relatively low, I think it's increasing. But I think in over 70s, the category you're just describing, Alexandra, I think the over 70s, they largely are vaxxed. I think it's, you know, 80% or something. Mm. So maybe, maybe there's been this big drop off this year in deaths because of the vax. Maybe it's because Delta is just simply less lethal. Maybe it's a combination of both. But when I look at countries like india where the delta variant started and you remember all the hysteria all the COVID fear porn over india two months ago three months ago yep. yeah they were just saying you know four thousand people dying a day of COVID, twenty-eight thousand people die every day in india okay and when they're having four thousand die briefly briefly okay that twenty-eight thousand figure barely budged okay so but the thing is and and india was had a very low vaccination rate at the time i'm i'm thinking about four percent Delta came in, a lot of people got it, a large number of people died, and then it just went away. You're but, quite that, right, John. So, You're yeah, quite yeah. right, John. You're quite right with India because they had natural transmission, and so the first waves actually led to a high percentage of people with uh, a natural immunity having their bodies already seen the virus. And we already know that your natural immunity seems to be outlasting that of the vaccine lifespans, which are being clocked between four and eight months. By the, uh, by the Israelis and I think it's Iceland. So you're completely correct about India. They're a much better test case for COVID than something like Australia, which hasn't had it go through the population. Mm. And Sweden, Sweden has got a similar vaccination rate to, to the rest of Europe, at least Western Europe, pretty high. Okay, now we're, we're, we're two and a half months into the Northern Hemisphere summer and we've got this winter-like virus uh, having this massive boom across the northern hemisphere, except for in Sweden. Hmm. Okay, so so you know so and, and why would that be? I don't think I don't think the big difference with Sweden can be put down to vax or no vax because they've pretty much 
the same as North America. I think it's about 55% of Swedes are vaxxed. Okay, so it's the same. Uh, but massive drop-off in cases and deaths uh, to the point where it's basically non-existent. Now, why is that? Because Sweden bit the bullet at the beginning. They said, we're going to face this. We're going to deal with it. We're going to have our trust our citizens to have uh, a lot of people locked out. A lot of people locked down in Sweden because they chose to. Okay, yeah. and so they should. Uh, yeah, when it was sort of very, very bad. So and because the government, uh, the government, the people trust the government because the government trusts the people in Sweden. The, the Swedish health authorities were transparent with the science and the advice that they were getting, uh, and they were open and mm -hmm. accountable for the decisions that they were making. Unlike the opaque um, models and scientific advice that we're told to just trust on face value because Daniel Andrews, Berejiklian and, and every other despot in the nation uh, says so. Um, and, and this is one of the things that was learned from the polio vaccination debacle in the 50s was government policy is very, very responsible for how people handle this. And if you want people to not be confused and distrusting of government, then the government has to behave differently. Uh, and that is a lesson, it seems, Sweden learned um, and a lot of the Western world uh, f forgot if they ever learned it. Um, so, look, one of the things I want to draw attention to is the death toll of, of lockdowns. Uh, and for many of you, I was never a home and away fan, um, but I knew of this lad, um, Dieter Brummer, uh, and he tragically passed away uh, recently. Uh, and his mum uh, says, you know what, there's a, at least some part of this that is related uh, to the consequences of government policy. Uh, not her exact words, uh, but she does say, an old mate had given him a job which he had just started. He was so excited. And that was only a couple of days before we were locked down. It was hard to look to the future. Initially, we were told it was for two weeks and then four weeks and then six weeks. Uh, she's at a loss as to the exact circumstances of her son's death. And she said to someone that he made a mistake that he couldn't undo. Uh, what happened to Dieter Brummer was like so many people right now, he tragically died of suicide. Uh, and this is the COVID death toll that Daniel Andrews doesn't want to talk about because uh, reported in the ABC News was the fact that one in 10 Victorians contemplated suicide seriously last year. Uh, and this is obviously going to be going on wherever the lockdowns are onerous, constant and sustained. Um, it is not a selfish, indulgent, um, petty little concern that uh, liberals, libertarians and conservatives have uh, about freedom. It's actually a significant health factor. Uh, and so many other things, breast cancer screenings are down, blood stocks are down, uh, and so many other really, really important health issues are being completely, completely neglected uh, by policies obsessed with this one-dimensional uh, zero-sum approach uh, which isn't even considering the fatalities. The fatalities of COVID don't justify it. It's only case numbers that they're looking at. Uh, so, yeah, uh, your your thoughts, Alexandra or, or John on... Um, John, the, oh, 
John, go. On the suicide thing, okay, so that is uh, one metric, okay, of people who, obviously an extreme metric if you thought about killing yourself, and some people have, okay, but if we sort of move back from that most extreme end of the spectrum where someone's killed themselves or thought about it, there will be other people who haven't got that far, who haven't contacted Lifeline, but who are seriously stressed out may be stuck in share accommodation with somebody that they generally don't get that well on with but they're stuck there maybe there's i bet there would be a lot of relationships fraying uh, health will be getting worse but just on sort of the human emotions there will be a that suicide thing is just one end and i'm sure that there will be on everything that's bad depression and stress and all these anxiety and relationships, they will all be deteriorating uh, because of this situation that we're in. And it's and now it's hard to measure that stuff. It's easy. You know, today we had two 90 year olds die in, uh, in, in Sydney, New South Wales. OK, well, that's easy to measure. A death is easy to, easy to measure and it sounds bad. Uh, but all these other little things like the people at the Freedom March, these were powerless people. And the march was their only way to sort of to make us because they had to do something. They were so furious about the government. They don't know how to contact their local MP. They don't know who their local MP is in most cases, but they had to do something. Powerless people are suffering a lot and we don't hear from them. Ellie, I'm hearing uh, some people are starting to question and ask uh, I've had the double vaccination. I've got both shots. Um, and right now I'm not treated any differently to anybody who has uh, not been vaccinated. Um, should they be looking for extra freedoms that the rest of us, great unwashed, um, are not getting? Um, or is that even the right question? That for me or Alexandra, Alexandra, sorry, that was for Ellie. Oh, right. Well, uh, no, you shouldn't. A, a responsible government would never create a, a two-tiered system of civilization. I mean, that is just the worst thing you could do as a government possible. It creates all sorts of havoc down the track. It's also morally reprehensible for, for no other reason. So, no, there should be no difference in how the vaccinated and unvaccinated are treated especially not when this vaccine, uh, these, this group of vaccines in particular, do not create herd immunity. They don't stop you from being infected mm. or transmitting COVID. Now, that is the basis upon which herd immunity and eradication arguments are made with other vaccines. But if your vaccine doesn't do that, you can't use that as your argument. And you certainly can't compare it to things like measles or polio because it's not the same thing. So, no, there's no scientific basis to create a split system and there's also no ethical basis to do so. So if they yep. want to let everybody out, they have to let everybody out. They want people to go back to work. Everybody has to be able to go back to work. It's all or nothing in this case. And once everyone has been offered the opportunity to get the vaccine, they can't keep us locked up. And I would argue that people who have no intention of taking a vaccine offered to them should be allowed out right now. There's no reason they should be locked in. If they don't care, if, if you're waiting, then by all means, stay at home. But why should we be locked up? It makes no sense. It should be a voluntary thing. John Prue McSween says, love the idea of a green pass, which allows fully vaccinated people to visit restaurants, pubs, 
hairdressers, etc. Politicians must accept this virus isn't going as going away. Keeping us locked up like animals and preventing business from operating is unacceptable and not facing the new reality. Uh, is Prue McSween right of centre normally? <laughs> what do you think about that comment? I'll give her the benefit of the doubt because she simply has not thought through these details because basically she, she's generally generally pretty pretty good on the political spectrum. Now, if we have this apartheid system and there are some lefties out there relishing the idea of having this minority that can be picked off and these are people that used to run the witch hunts in medieval Europe and they get a thrill out of it, demonising people. Now, let's say we end up with 15% of this country takes Novaks, might be 40%, but look, Judging, judging what else is happening in the, in the Western world, I'm going to guess it's, I'd say it's going to be 75 to 80%. Might take a little while, but, but let's say we end up with just 10, 90% of Australians after various levels of coercion, we end up with 90% double vaxxed and 10% not. And we end up with 10% of our fellow Australians who for whatever reason do not want to take the vaccine. And they might be wrong about it, but they are our fellow citizens and they are now a minority. Now, I thought the left was meant to look after the rights of minorities. And so we, sh and, uh, you know, if 90% are vaxxed, uh, I, you know, I can't see how those, that 10% that who'll probably be the healthiest 10% in Australia, there'll be people who believe in natural immunity, doing exercise and getting sunshine. Now, there are, now, are we going to have a situation where we're going to be able to say, you can't come to the cinema unless you're, you're, you're double vaxxed. You can't come to this pub unless you're double vaxxed. We are going to end up, I mean, just, it's going to, it's going to, rip apart families hmm. uh, families and, and wider families it's going to rip apart workplaces it's going to be a very cruel horrible situation and uh, and we need to resist it at all costs and anybody that's supporting it look you know they just haven't thought through these consequences and i'm not blaming prue mcsween for this but there are some lefties out there who are chomping at the bit to have a little minority to 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 persecute yeah, I think it's quite sick. Well, I guess I'm just really, really confused it, as to... Sorry, Ellie, you go. Oh, no, no, quickly. It's Prue's fourth or fifth go at this, so she has she has definitely thought it through. It's not her first rodeo on, on this concept of vaccine passports. She's all for locking up people um, in order for everybody else to go free. But my point is, if we accept a two-tiered system for vaccinated and unvaccinated, like Scott Morrison wants, like Gladys Berejiklian is, is all for, then we are accepting that our basic rights as Australians are wagered against our, our voluntary, sorry, our ability to have medical things as from the government. Like we can't say you could have rights if you agree to take a vaccine. No, we have rights already. It's not, it's not versus a vaccine. It's their inherent rights. Sorry, if you get what I'm saying. We don't want to set that precedent where our rights are now negotiable. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I'm just um, flicking around behind the scenes here while you're on full screen looking for a message I got today. Um, and here we go. Just found it. Um, Philip Thompson, MP, uh, has said to one of uh, my viewers, uh, Daniel, uh, that what we've implemented is a proof of vaccination, not a vaccination passport. This has been developed to give people the option of being able to show they've been vaccinated if they want to. Ultimately, all decisions on state borders are down to individual state governments. They can only only they can control who they let in. 
I'm sure there's a clause in the Constitution about that. Uh, the federal government doesn't have any say in this area, but the Constitution does. The same goes for individual businesses. Here we go, an alleged liberal saying, businesses have a general right to impose restrictions on access to their premises, which may include implementing vaccination requirements while considering their obligations under safety, anti-discrimination and privacy laws. John, the problem I have with Prue McSween's uh, tweet is that it's not inconsistent with generally the coalition's position, the Liberal Party position especially, uh, on segregation, medical segregation and discrimination. Uh, yeah, look, I accepted about a year ago that I'm not going to be leaving New South Wales for some time because you know, I'm not going to rush into getting this fax. Now, I don't rule out getting it in the future. But, you know, I want to see how it unfolds. Now, Sensible. Um, I think what's going to happen here is they're going to do this. There is going to be a vaccine passport. There is going to be a two, a two, a, an apartheid-style system. And there's going to be, uh, you know, and, and, and when there's COVID outbreaks, the baddies are going to say to the 10% of the, the, the vax rats, the people that they say are not taking them, they're going to get blamed for doing it. But I believe it can't go on for too long, that malice and, and, and the irrationality of it. I think it will. I think it will come in and then people will sort of, you know, uh, see, you know, we've just got it. We, I, think pe I think in other countries they're not going to go as, as crazy as we are here about it. And there's already a lot of pushback in places, places like France and other places and Florida and Texas and many other places. So mm. I, think, I think that, you know, they'll go I've, – I've, Got it a feeling the Liberal Party, the Labor Party, the press all think it's a great idea. So I reckon it's going to happen. But I think it will. I think the people that engineer it will in the future be ashamed that they had anything to do with it because people will see, you know, that really was crazy the way that we were treating a large number of Australians. Even if it's 10% of the country, two and a half million people. Well, uh, there's some comments down below that I just noticed. I can clarify for them. Uh, Scott Morrison can't put a mandatory vaccinations for business because it's not part of the federal government ability to do so. What he's done instead is direct state governments to introduce health mandates, which can override the fair work legislation and the privacy laws, which are currently preventing businesses from introducing uh, mandatory vaccinations. So he's essentially directed the states to do what he can't do and to circumnavigate our current privacy laws. Now, SPC will be one of the first examples of whether or not mandatory vaccinations work, but they did not do it with a health order. So until the health order is out, we won't know if it's going to be legal or not. Yep. Interesting. I, I, um, I'm terribly embarrassed. I can't remember where I was going to after this little um, section, but something's gone from my head. Um, so... Uh, John, were you going to say something? Save me. <laughs> wow. Well, oh, I remember me. now, but anyway, save me. No, hit me, hit me. Go, go. Uh, okay. Uh, Silver Berberian, um, apologies, Silver, if I uh, pronounce it wrong, says if the libs don't change soon, they may lose in the next election and the alternative is dangerous to have Labor in government. Okay, so there's a couple of questions there, John. Uh I guess my first, or maybe my second question, um, and you can start with my first one. <laughs> I'll just ask them in backwards. Second one is accelerationism. Really, what's left for Labor to destroy that the Liberal Party haven't already? Uh, families, 
marriage, uh, fiscal responsibility, um, caring for small business, uh, liberty and and freedom, small government, small bureaucracy. Uh, what's left if if we vote for Albanese? What's left for him to destroy? Uh, really, what's why not just get it over and done with and burn the Liberal House down, get rid of all the wets and moderates and and people who are anti-liberty and give us, you know, the inevitable, it's, it's inevitable eventually we're going to have two or three terms of Labor. Uh, let's just get it over and done with and build um, the right wing back better. Look, it's a hard thing to to sort of know. I, James Allen wrote a very good article for The Spectator a couple of months ago saying he thinks Australia would have been much better off if Shorten had won the last election. And he said, ScoMo's governed like his left-wing Labor in terms of the budget deficit and all the crap, all the crap. Mm. He hasn't done anything positive to pr promote a freedom agenda in any description. Uh, but James Allen says, so look, policy-wise, that'd be the same. True. But he says, if the Libs were in opposition... At least we'd have an opposition and mm. government needs an opposition. Westminster needs an opposition. So we don't have an opposition now. ScoMo's governing like the, the, the left wing of the Labor Party. And the only criticism we hear from Labor is occasionally you haven't gone far enough on some stupid thing. Okay. So uh, if they're as bad as each other, you know, I often thought, I often think of like 1945, one of the weirdest election results in the 20th century was. Winston Churchill, the man of the the man of the century, you know, the great, the great polymath, the great statesman, the great saviour of Western civilization, loses well loses the election shortly after uh, that they've declared war, again the biggest war in history. And I've often thought, why why on earth did the British people reject Winston Churchill? They then voted for him again in 1950, but why in 1945 did they reject him? And I think it was more a case of that the British people who were worn out, war-torn, literally, you know, places in rubble in many, you know, much of London and other places in rubble. And I just think that the people said, we just, you know, we've had the war. Let's have a new era of peace. Let's have a fresh start. If ScoMo, if, if Albo were to win, I think there would be a little bit of a feeling along that line that... Um, you know, it's basically going to be the same direction, but at least ScoMo and Gladys and all those other people are sort of so tied in. They've put, they've invested their reputation on COVID being such a big deal. Maybe Albo, who I think is more one of the more more rational Labor Party people, maybe he would actually sort of get us out of this quagmire sooner than Scott Morrison. The big, the big massive concern with a Labor government right now is that all the left wing parties around the world are completely uh into this climate cult completely mm. believe in it okay and that's this COVID thing is not really the most dangerous thing it's the climate cult the COVID's the entree to the to the main meal which is hardcore global warming policies you know really extreme ones this is what they want this is why there's a direct correlation between people who how much you love COVID mania and how much you love global warming there's pretty much you know there's very few exceptions of people who don't don't see the, the correlation um, so that is the problem with Labor. They're all their global warming nonsense. But look, look. the bottom line is, vote one for the Liberal Democrats, vote two for Ellie Melly's party, One Nation, and <laughs> you know, then, uh, then who you put last uh, is, of course, up to you. 
I'll be putting the Liberals ahead of the Labor and the Greens. And I think, I can't speak on behalf of the Liberal Democrats, but I think that is generally their policy. There might well, be one or two baddies who, uh, who uh, you know, get a... Um, might be one. Look, there could be one or two Liberals who have been so unforgivable that maybe we'll pre preference Labor ahead of them, but I, I, I'm speculating. Yeah, well, uh, I would encourage everybody to choose their own preferences anyway. Um, let's have a talk about LDP. There's plenty of people in comments who would agree that One Nation is their party. Uh, and this wonderful book you wrote back when it wasn't um, fiction and fantasy, uh, Make the Liberal Party Great Again, uh, has a quote at the top from Ross Cameron who said, Victor Hugo was right, nothing is stronger than an idea whose time has come. Uh, what, in your mind, uh, free free campaign pitch here, what, in, in your mind, makes the LDP a party whose ideas have come? Well, look, that, that book, Make the Liberal Party Great Again, had a, you know, it was my first book. It had a sort of a sexy name for some people. Uh, it certainly <laughs> was going to catch people's attention. The book is really a technical manual on how to have an ideal Australian political party in the 21st century. I said in the book, look, Labor could do this, any political party could do what we're proposing, which is, you know, hardcore democratisation, primaries to select candidates, big state conventions to elect Senate candidates, big national conventions to elect the federal parliamentary leader. These would have been exciting reforms. Uh, Scott Morrison is very hostile to these, these reforms. So I knew that, look, we were going to make no progress on reforming the party until we were in opposition. So I thought, look, this is a five to ten year project and I was going to wait them out. Uh, but then, of course, the COVID mania came along and I just thought, wow, the nation really is in peril here. We don't have ten years to fix up the Liberal Party. So I thought, OK, well, uh, we need to put the political energy into, into a party. And I thought I saw uh, I saw David Limbrick on Sky News once and I just thought the penny dropped. I thought, gee, this is a no brainer. The Lib Dems are the party, the Libertarian Party which are having got the right message for what's happening right now. I just thought, look, the Libs have completely stuffed up on COVID management. Unbelievable debt at a state and federal level. And they're all up for global warming, 2050, you know, all but. So I'm thinking, look, if the, if the party has failed these three tests, when are they going to get anything hard right? They're mm. not. The Liberal Party has become a victim of its own success. It's won so many elections. It's won several, seven of the last nine federal elections. And so what has happened is when you're a party in government for so long, you get to hand out a hell of a lot of perks, uh, staffing positions, seats in parliament, lobbying contracts, positions in the party, uh, statutory authorities. There's a million of them placing all their political mates on all these, you know, $300,000 a year jobs. Okay. So with all these perks to hand out, the party attracts an enormous amount of spibs who get involved in the political process because there's something in it for them. There's a perk for them. Now, of course, we should be getting motivated and getting interested in politics because we're patriots who care about the next generation. So the Liberal Party has been, I would still say, 80% of party members of the Liberal Party across Australia, very good people and, and with the best of intentions. And I reckon that they are not real happy with SCOMO, um, but the but it's the twenty percent of activists who've got the, who are making money out of it. They're the activists. They dominate it because it's not a democratic party. So 
Look, I don't, I, I cannot see them being ever reformed into being a, a good party again. And I think this is why we need a fresh start, getting a new party, or they're not a new party, they've been around for 20 years, but getting a party from a small party into a party of government does yep. not happen often in history, but it does happen. Yep. Well, my advice, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up and just um, get final thoughts off everybody now, but um, my advice to everybody, all this election coming, this federal election coming, uh, survey the best candidates, rank them from best to worst or worst to best, whichever. It's not an endorsement. It's a list of preferences uh, in the lower house. But in the upper house, in each state, I, I think time has come to destroy the control that any major party has over both houses, and it's time to have a very strong pro-liberty pro-family, pro-small government crossbench. Uh, and that's the independents, minor parties, etc. And so uh, I would very genuinely, and not just because he's here on the screen with me, but behind his back, Campbell's back and, and everybody else, uh, I, I think there's a lot of minor, small parties, right of centre and independents who deserve to be considered for the Senate. Um, and, and certainly the major party um, tickets should be ignored. Never, ever, ever vote above the line. Do some work and uh, figure out how you're going to number. Uh, I think it's at least six boxes beneath the line on the uh, federal ballot. Is that right, uh, guys? Six boxes beneath the line? For the Senate? Yeah, for the Senate. Is it six or 12 beneath the line? Uh, I, think you, I think you get up to 12 tickets, yeah, but six, six get elected. But you, right. You can, so, you can... uh, at any rate, it's not hard work. Um, make sure you do not vote above the line. Uh, vote for people who are going to be pro-liberty. The people who are speaking out against vaccine passports would be a very, very good start. Um, okay, John, um, we'll come back to you just for some final thoughts. But, Ellie, final thoughts for the evening. On the topic of liberty and politics, I would tell people... Be prepared to wander in the wilderness, but at the end you'll find Shangri-La because I have a feeling that we are entering a period of darkness and it will get worse before it gets better if history is any kind of blueprint for the future. Brilliant. Um, RJ Taylor just asked the question, what about uh, the territories in Queensland that don't have an upper house? Um, yeah, good question. However, we're talking. I'm talking about the federal election, which is likely to be... Uh, between March and May next year. The federal election has that upper house. Uh, John, your final thoughts for the evening. Look, it's, it's, a, it's easy to get depressed about mm. so many things right now. But let's keep our optimism. Let's keep our hope. And let's think, look, this is a, in many ways, a great time to be alive in that, you know, we get a real opportunity here to defend our freedoms. This is not a theoretical textbook uh, study. This is really happening. What Ellie Melly said is right. If this keeps going, we are going to be a 21st century George Orwell. China's halfway there already. Okay, so if we don't stop this, and so look, it's and it's gonna it comes at a, it comes at a personal cost for everybody who's prepared to resist the this this dreadful orthodoxy that we have. I am confident that rationality will eventually uh, triumph and this whole thing will start to fall apart. And uh, all I can say, look, we don't have any other choice. Ronald Reagan used to say, look, uh, of America, you know, 
this is the last stand of freedom in the world. If we lose it here, we've got it nowhere. Well, in the past, in 19th century Europe, if you were uh, you know, living in oppressed a, a, a somewhere, you could jump on a boat and come to Australia or Canada or America, okay, and, and go to a land and for freedom. Where the hell are we going to go if we lose freedom in Australia? Okay, so hungry. So we, this is it. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, <laughs> look, this is it. We this this so so and I think we'll win. It is an extraordinary time in Western civilization. I really can't think of anything comparable to it. Look, it is a it is similar to the Cultural Revolution in China. Again, it's a much milder version, but it's heading mm. in that direction. It's heading in that direction, and it reminds me of the. Yep religious wars in the 1400s and the 1500s and the 1600s where they used to catholics would burn protestants at the stake and then vice versa and they would have these and the witch burnings and they really believed it they really believed that they were doing mm. god's work by killing persecuting these minorities this is a very you know it, it's almost like the west was so triumphant at the end of the cold war that we've now sort of like the last days of the roman empire we're sort of having an internal internal war it's not it's ugly it's it, it's not good but you know we've got it we've, we must prevail yes yeah. well the natural end of politics is violence if you get politics wrong civilization collapses into turmoil that's why we have to get the politics right so vote one nation first and then lip dance <laughs> Uh, there's uh, lots of good candidates. Uh, always uh, check your candidate out. Don't just vote for the party. Vote for the person um, and ask them what their policies are. Uh, voting for a Christian is as dumb as voting for a, a white man. <laughs> Actually ask what people's policies are. It's the only thing that's going to change anything uh, in Parliament. Uh, John Ruddock, thank you very much uh, for thank your time you, on the show tonight. And Ellie... Ellie, thank you as always for yours as well. Um, you can find uh, both of these two on Twitter. Um, John Ruddick is at John Ruddick2. That's R U D D I C K with the number two. And Ellie Alexandra Marshall is at Ellie Melly. That's E L L Y M E L L Y for those folks on the podcast. Well, that is it for. Pello Talk tonight. Thank you very much for your company. And um, we've got uh, a little uh, quote from Queen Elizabeth here to uh, take us out. Today, we need a special kind of courage, not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.